0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm with Terry Fakes today, and I feel like we are wandering into your area of expertise today because we're doing an overview of the book of Exodus.
1: I've had my maps out, and I've been tracing routes. Yes. and if
0: This would have been, of all the podcasts to do a video podcast, this really would have been the one to do, so we this can get all the been. maps up.
1: But we can talk content a little bit and and sometimes I think, I mean it's very good to to let the geography also inform what's going on, but this will force us to focus on the events and what they mean. Do you think think in
0: the original manuscripts maybe there were pictures?
1: If you've read Lord of the Rings and you've seen, you know, Tolkien's drawings, I envision it much like that.
0: Yeah, I would think it probably eats you up a little bit, there were no pictures. In these manuscripts. That's right. Well, one of the reasons that uh, we're doing this podcast is just continuing our march through the overviews of the Bible and of all the books eventually. I think we're just a little over halfway at this point. But another thing that uh, is really significant about this one, and one of the reasons we broke this up into two parts, we'll do Exodus part one, and then we'll we'll go through chapter 18, and then we'll start in chapter 19 at Mount Sinai and do part two at some point is because the Exodus is one of those defining events in the Bible, not just in the Old Testament and the history of Israel, but throughout the entire Bible. In fact, I just recommended a book in uh, June's uh, recommended reads called Exodus Old and New by Michael Morales, and it's a biblical theology of the Exodus throughout Scripture. So he starts at the very beginning with the quote-unquote Exodus from Eden, and it goes all the way through and traces that theme to the very end when you have the people in the book of Revelation seeing the song of Moses, because there is an Exodus out of the old earth into the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we talk about the Exodus and reading the book of Exodus, this actually sprawls out across the rest of scripture. And so the way we read Exodus actually helps us to read the rest of the Bible
1: as well. I agree. And when you said biblical theology, for our listeners that maybe aren't as much into the theology is, you have systematic theology, historical theology, but a biblical theology focuses on those large themes that run through the Bible, the overarching elements of the story of God. And I think you could do worse than understand all of the Bible, through the lens of the Exodus. I'm not saying that's all you need to know, but if that's all you knew, you would really understand the gospel well.
0: I totally agree. So there's kind of a double uh, benefit of learning to read the Exodus well and spending a lot of time in this book. Now, most people are familiar with the beginning of the Exodus uh, because they know the story of Moses as a child. He's put in the river, in the basket, Pharaoh's daughter comes along, uh, most people that have seen the Prince of Egypt know the basic contours of this story, but we actually need to start slightly before that. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick this over to you. Why does the book of Exodus open in the land of Egypt to begin with?
1: Great question. Going back into the prior book of Genesis, you will remember that God makes some promises to Abraham, chapters 12 and 15 of Genesis. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abraham has no children at this point. I'm going to give you a land, the land that he was in, the current nation of Israel, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And when he makes the covenant with Abraham, he says, he predicts, he says, your descendants will be strangers in a land not their own for 400 years, but I will bring them out of slavery and bring them back here. Okay, think traditional dating, circa 2000 B.C., So that's for Abraham. Think the end of the book of Genesis when, sure enough, the descendants are the ones, the 70 or so descendants by the end of the book of Genesis, because of a a drought and famine in the land of Israel, or Canaan as it was called at that time, go to Egypt to stay alive, to get grain and to live, and voila, they find Joseph there, and so Joseph settles them, and so about 1800 BC, you have these 70 Israelites settled in the land of Goshen, an area up in the northeastern part of Egypt, very fertile land, and they begin to prosper. Exodus opens about 400 years later in Egypt where they have become very numerous and very comfortable But they have, just as God predicted, been enslaved by a Pharaoh who was afraid of their great numbers and wanted to capitalize on the cheap slave labor to build the infrastructure of Egypt. And so Exodus opens in dire times for the Israelites.
0: Yeah, and when we open in chapter 1, we get a reminder that this group of people is the family of Abraham. I mean, this is the chosen people, the promised people and that times have gotten pretty difficult for them. uh, And that Pharaoh decides to make things even more difficult by putting to death uh, the children of Israel, the male children of Israel. And uh, so this is a theme that's popped up a lot, I think, as we think through kind of our postmodern moment, uh, you know, that the the, the exodus is, is born out of a genocide, for example. You hear people say that sometimes. And this connects to the, so, the sojourn of uh, Mary and, and Joseph and Jesus later, that they are, you know, uh, forced to flee as refugees to Egypt. And so we've started to read some modern language onto this. This would have been fairly common in the ancient world to have a group of people who are subjugated basically in massive building projects, free labor, Uh, and the population is growing a little bit out of control, so what does the Pharaoh do? He's probably the most powerful person in the world at this point. What does he do? He cracks down on the population, and he does it brutally, and so we're faced at the beginning of the book of Exodus with a really difficult situation for the Israelites. What do you do? And Moses' parents face this question, and so what do they do? Well, they decide to give it their best shot to keep their son alive. And so they put him in a little basket and they send him down the river. Now, God has something else in store here that we quickly find out about when he is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, this this would have been something that if you're reading this in hindsight, you would have said, this is almost too good to be true. You know, is this a fairy tale or something like that? How did this possibly happen? But in the same way that God put Joseph in Pharaoh's household as the second in charge over all of Egypt, he does it again. He is going to put the person that he has called in the right place at the right time to do the right thing. And one of the things I love about the story about Moses is it's not a straight line from this moment where he's found in the basket in the Nile River to what we think that he's going to do later on. In fact, he actually hits a pretty big snag. He grows up in Pharaoh's household, but he goes out and he sees the plight of his people and uh, he attacks uh, an Egyptian and kills him and then has to flee to the desert. So the story has reversed again here by saying this is so unfortunate that you have the perfect person in the perfect place who's now leaving Egypt never to
1: return. I mean, there's some real drama at the beginning of this story. There really is, and you get an insight into everybody's character that sets the stage. If you, And if you were writing this as a screenplay, you couldn't do better than this. So you have Moses, who grew up in the household, but he's still keenly aware of who he is. And he sees people that are like him, and they are being oppressed. And you see the tenderness of his heart and his desire for justice. You see the Egyptians' brutality and oppression And then, after he kills the Egyptian, you see the Israelites holding that over his head. And so, instead of being grateful, they're the ones that that throw it back in his face. And so, you see Moses' sense of justice and loyalty to his people, the Egyptians' brutality and the fickleness of Israel, right? Right. I want to point out three
0: things that are in these opening two chapters that end up coming back around several times throughout the Old Testament. The first one being what you just pointed out the uh, the stiff necked people of Israel, right? Come through in early in this story, but that's going to be a recurring theme, and something that actually Moses, probably more than anyone in the history uh, of Israel, is going to have to deal with. These are the people he's going to have to lead into the wilderness, and this is the generation that's going to have to pass away before they can enter the promised land.
1: Right. You know, Cole, just a connection here. This is what I think of in the New Testament. Do you remember the little passage where it talked about Jesus knew what was in men's hearts because they were praising him for all the healing. And it says, he knew what was in the heart of men and this is in the gospel of John and did not entrust himself to them. Uh, You may have different opinions about that, but I think that makes so much sense knowing that we are just as fickle as the Israelites. Absolutely. I think that's a theme that runs through all of scripture. The second thing is
0: in chapter two, verse one, we get a little interesting little piece of information that Moses is from the house of Levi. And that's going to be significant, not just because Moses is from the house of Levi, but that his brother Aaron is from the house of Levi. So they are of the family that will become the priests of Israel. They are Levites. And that's going to become very significant in the second half of this book, and especially through uh, Leviticus and Numbers later on. Uh, The third thing is when, so when Moses flees from Egypt, he goes to the land of Midian. This is in uh, chapter two, verse 15. He arrives in the land of Midian, which is significant for a lot of reasons in Exodus, but it's significant for other reasons too, because the Midianites are now introduced and they are going to be uh, good and bad characters for the rest of the history of Israel. They are going to be cousins with Israel uh, throughout the Old Testament, sometimes in a way that's helpful, and a lot of times in ways that are not helpful.
1: Right, exactly. There's a, that, that's one of the beauties of the Bible. Everything you're going to read through this book and through the whole Bible is you don't have cardboard cutout characters, you know, just artificially good, artificially bad. You really have complex characters which reflects the nature of humanity, and the Midianites are one of those complex characters characters Mm -hmm. so moses is in midian
0: and he's basically started in a new life he gets married he is tending sheep he's building um, a household and in chapter three he has a very interesting thing happen to him so he's keeping the flock with his father-in-law jethro And who's also called Ruel, other places in the Old Testament. This is the same character. And uh, he's a priest of Midian. And so he comes to Horeb, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, presumably, this is written in hindsight because Moses does not know at this point that this is the mountain of God, right? He uh, is tending his sheep. And so he kind of wanders onto Mount Horeb and the angel of the Lord appears to him in a burning bush, right? One of the most famous images in the entire Bible, And Moses, it says, looks and beholds, and the bush was burning, but it was not being consumed. So I want to spend a moment talking about where he is on Mount Horeb, because this is going to be really significant for the rest of the book of Exodus. So he travels over to the mountain of the Lord, and the burning bush is there. He sees it. He takes off his shoes. God speaks to him. He reveals his name to him. This is in verse six. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I want to point out one thing here. A lot of people read Exodus, a lot of scholars read Exodus as if later in this book, when they get to chapter 19, they become the people of Israel. So that's the point where they receive the law and everything before this is kind of a made up mythology to become the people of God. But that's not at all the way that the book of Exodus portrays the people of Israel. There's a continuity from the time of Abraham all the way through to the time of Moses. And it doesn't really make sense for that narrative to be true because of the way that God introduces himself to Moses here, that Moses would have known about Abraham. You know, he's raised because his sister... um, yells out at the river that she's going to take care of him as a nurse. And so he's raised knowing about who his people are, who the people of Israel are. They don't become the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. They continue to be those people. And God is continuing a promise that he made to Abraham, um, you know, 600 years before this, at this point. So God talks to him and says, he wants, he's heard the cries of his people and he's going to bring them out of Egypt. And I think this verse chapter three, verse 12 is really significant he says, I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So this, this phrase is worth uh, studying. This will be the sign. Not just that you come out of Egypt, not just that he does the miracles and the wonders and, and everything like that. The sign is that God is going to faithfully bring the people back to that spot. Right where Moses is standing, go get the people of Israel, bring them back here. The Exodus actually has a specific destination. It's not, the goal of the Exodus is not just to get the people out of Egypt. The goal of the Exodus is to get the people out of Egypt and bring them to this mountain and then get them to the promised land. Right. So one of the things that we infer by looking at it this way is that Mount Horeb, which is the mountain that he's on in chapter three, is Mount Sinai. Where they will arrive in chapter 19. Now you might say, "Well, why, are, why is why is it called Mount Horeb here and Mount Sinai there?" Because that's a really confusing way to describe something. You see these words, these names, used interchangeably throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Um, in in the book of Numbers as well. And we don't know necessarily why it's called one thing or the other, but, but we can be sure that Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. Right. Now, what makes
1: that a little difficult is we're not 100% sure where this is. Right. I think it, uh, maybe in, if you think about this just in your mind, we won't do much geography here, but even today, if you leave the very northern part of Egypt, and you go east across the Red Sea, but you just go east, you're in the Sinai Peninsula, which Egypt controls today. Well, down the west side, the left edge of the Sinai Peninsula is where Midian is located. Well, if you just go further south, down somewhere near the the southern tip uh, of the Sinai Peninsula, All of the candidates for, well, I shouldn't say all the candidates, but the most popular candidates for Mount Sinai are down there in that southern tip, which is very close to Midian.
0: Yeah, the traditional site, you know, the one that's called Mount Sinai, is down at the very tip of the Sinai Peninsula in the south. And uh, there's some debate over whether that is the place or not. Some people think, so we don't have a map here, but if you think about a peace sign, that pointed up that's what the red sea looks like around uh, the sinai peninsula right and so down at the bottom of that v is where people think mount sinai is and that's where the the catholic churches are that's where the historical site is right. there is another group that thinks that mount sinai is actually on the east side of the uh, eastern of the two fingers in the peace sign so um Midian is another place that people are kind of unsure of where it was at this point, but for all the discussion about it, and I think this is interesting, especially because you see uh, two other figures in the Bible, Elijah and Paul go down to uh, the Sinai area. Some people think that they actually went to Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about where this might be. I think most people probably think it's down at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula.
1: I agree. I think that's probably the consensus view, although you can't be too dogmatic about it, but it makes sense for it to be in that area. The other thing that this affects uh, that we'll probably
0: touch on a little bit later is where Israel crossed the Red Sea. This is something else that's interesting because archaeologists and scholars want to find evidence that Israel crossed the Red Sea. And then you've got all these History Channel specials saying, we've never found any chariot wheels at the bottom. We don't know where a group of people could have crossed the Red Sea. So if they go northern, that's kind of the shallow crossing, the Sea of Reeds. If they go across the second of the Red Seas into the far east, it's much deeper. If they go down the Nile River a little ways and then they go across, it's deeper. So do you have a favorite conjecture on this?
1: I'm a a fan of the northern idea. And again, this is an opinion. I don't have a well-reasoned answer, but, you know, the Red Sea can be interpreted the Sea of Reeds. I don't subscribe to the apologetic that tries to make this understandable and say, well, you know, God didn't really do anything miraculous here. It just, you know, was just not as good a ground and they crossed on their own. I, I don't buy that at all. Otherwise, why put it in there? So, I do think that it was an an impassable area for them on their own. And I think when they passed over miraculously, it was a very muddy and deep enough to drown people area for the chariots. But it seems, I mean, God could have done this anywhere, but it seems to me the northern part is the most direct route. Yeah, I think that that makes the most sense
0: geographically. I've heard somebody say, or I've heard a couple of people say that the miracle, if it's a deep crossing, the miracle is that Israel got a cross. And if it's a shallow crossing, the miracle is that God figured out a way to drown Pharaoh and his whole army in about a foot of water. <laughs> so one way or the other, you're getting a miraculous crossing. You're getting a miraculous act of God to keep the Israelites safe as they cross. So I think the predominant view is that they cross towards the north of the west section of the Red Sea. They come down into the south of of Uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and they come back to the place where God had initially spoken to Moses on Mount Horeb. And um, I think this is important because the Exodus is not just to free Israel, but to bring Israel to the place where God can give them the law, and they can be uh, in his presence through the sacrificial system, and then they can go into the promised land as
1: God promised their fathers 400 years before this. I think it's important you bring that out because when we shorthand The book of Exodus, and I've done it myself, said God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and to the promised land. But one of the great things about taking a little deeper dive is there's more to the story. And you're right. He has something really important to do. Bring them to Sinai, bind them in a covenant, and then fulfill the promise. So I think diving a little deeper gives you a sense of the texture and depth of the book. Yeah. So after this, Moses uh,
0: does the back and forth with God you know, the classic, he is not worthy. He's got a speech impediment. He he can't go, you know, please get somebody else, but God sends him because he is the perfect person to go. But he promises that his brother's going to help him. So they go to Egypt and they go and they ask Pharaoh if they can go out and worship their God in the wilderness. Now, Pharaoh is no dummy. He knows that it's gonna be very uh, unlikely that everybody goes out to worship three days into the wilderness and then comes back. So he says, no. So God has equipped Moses with signs and wonders with which to judge Egypt and with which to free the people of Egypt. And this is the most famous part of the Exodus. We get the plagues, right? And when you step back for a second though, you start to think, why is it that God decided to use plagues To free the people of Israel out of Egypt. You could do a lot of different things, but he gives Moses the power to inflict these plagues on Israel or on on Egypt. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I, I see them as judgments on the gods of Egypt. They're not just coercive acts to Pharaoh and the various. Plagues, the various judgments that God brings to them are directed at the gods. You know, the Nile turning to blood and being basically unusable is a direct blow to the Nile, the great fertility god, to Pharaoh's role as the son of the gods to provide for his people— I think that these things are directed to make the point that Egypt's gods are not real gods and God is, uh, Yahweh is the only real God and has the power. Yes, I think that uh,
0: everything you just said kind of falls under the heading of the judgment of Egypt, the judgment of Egypt's gods. It's tempting sometimes when you hear people um, making a case against the Exodus, against the Bible, or against God's actions to treat Egypt like it was just this wonderful, innocent place that all of a sudden Moses walks into and inflicts these terrible plagues on. But all throughout the Old Testament, Egypt is the opposition to God and to his people. Right. And one of the reasons is because of the claims that the Egyptians were making and that the pharaohs of Egypt were making. So like rulers that followed the pharaoh in Egypt claimed to be god. Now they were polytheists, so they had a lot of gods, but that the pharaoh was divine. And like we said earlier, he's probably the most powerful person in the world at this point because of their technology, because of their right. uh, military might. And so what God is doing is he is taking that claim and destroying it. Destroying the 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 pride of Pharaoh who says, no, I am God and this is my this is my land and these are my rules and these are our gods. The God of Israel comes in and basically says, no, you're not. And no, they are not. I am the one true God.
1: Yeah. Can I go one layer deeper on this too? I mean, everything you and I've just said, I think is true, but I, I may peel the onion back and go one layer deeper here. So follow me on this. So Israel goes to Egypt circa 1800 BC as a refuge. They get there, Joseph settles them, and they're doing great. They become really large in number, and they're foreigners. So Pharaoh dies, new Pharaoh, doesn't know Joseph, looks at this group of people. There's some evidence also, by the way, that during this time, Egypt is invaded by the uh, Hyksos rulers. So these are foreigners I'll just touch this briefly. During that 1800 to 1400, the thought is that there were some foreign rulers of Egypt. They weren't Egyptian. They were Semitic peoples like the Israelites, not Israelites, but other people. And so when the Egyptians got back on the throne, they said, hey, we cannot afford to be overpowered again like this. And you look and you've got a million or two Semitic people sitting here and you think, hey, if somebody invades, they're gonna join the army. We've got the enemy within the gates. And so Pharaoh oppresses them and makes them slaves so that they are no longer a threat. It's a shrewd political move on his part. It's not good, but it's shrewd. And then they become dependent on Pharaoh. But by the time you get to Exodus, Pharaoh is now dependent on the slaves Mm -hmm. and economically Egypt can't live without them. Why do you think he's not letting them go? I mean, if if he's just worried about them rising up, he'd say, yeah, get out of here, go. But he needs them now. And he needs the slave labor. So God comes into the picture. And these plagues, if you notice, not only are they judgments on the gods of Egypt, who were primarily fertility, prosperity, gods in that era, by the before you get to the 10th plague, even Pharaoh's own people are saying to him, do you not realize Egypt is economically ruined? Right. And so these plagues destroy Egypt's economy. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really interesting that that Pharaoh is using God's people for his economy and God destroys his economy. And at the end of the day, you see that same lesson, and that is God writes history, not Pharaoh. That's a great point, and I think I
0: hadn't thought about it quite that way before. The way that God judges the nations of the earth throughout the Old Testament is really significant, and this is certainly judgment or almost decreation for Egypt. You see that term a lot, decreation and destruction, of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I read this a little bit because some people, you know, will listen to this and they'll say, well, that, you know, that just does not fit with a God of love. Why would a God, you know, why would God want to just destroy Egypt and inflict pain on all the people there? I read it in the same vein as the tower of Babel. So you have the, the deconstruction of the tower of Babel where people are building a monument to themselves and God scatters them. The same thing happens in Egypt. You, you have this empire who throughout the Old Testament is opposed to God, and God decreates the empire and he freezes people in the process. There's, I want to hit on this point because it, this is really helpful when you start to read the prophets because Egypt, like Babylon, almost becomes a shorthand for the empires of the earth that are against Israel. Exactly. Um, So in Ezekiel 29, three, for example, we get this really interesting picture of Egypt and Pharaoh. So he says, speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Now he's not talking about the individual physical Pharaoh at this point, he's talking about Pharaoh as a powerful ruler who puts up a rival claim to God just as the pharaoh in this time period was doing and that God is showing that he reigns over the kings of the earth and so economically as you mentioned spiritually uh, physically these plagues are proof that God is who he says he is and that these are his people he's going to bring them out Canaan, but he's he's going to oppose Pharaoh and Egypt in the process.
1: And he he does it in a way that rebuts Egypt's gods and undermines Pharaoh's boasting of his economic and military prowess. You notice he destroys the economy and then he destroys the army. He literally undercuts Pharaoh's own personal gods of prosperity and power
0: so as the the meat of the of the chapters that we're looking at today starting in verse in chapter 7 and going all the way over to chapter 13 is this series of plagues that's being described and so you get to the final plague and this one is a little bit different not only because the plague itself is different god tells them that the angel the destroyer is going to come um which i'll just mention i was so I was preaching on this passage through the lens of Psalm 114, which is about the Exodus. And I went back because Psalm 114 mentions the destroyer, which we also see later in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, and in the prophets. But actually what it says here, when I went back to look at the book of Exodus, is that God is going to descend on Egypt. So, you know, in in The movie, The Prince of Egypt, you have the angel of death or something that comes. This is common in the Old Testament to see God's own presence described, just like it is in chapter 3. It says the angel of the Lord. Sometimes it's very difficult to tell the angel of the Lord from God himself. In fact, the angel of the Lord is revered like God. Some people have posited that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a pre-incarnate Christ, And uh, it's just a reminder to us that the way that God interacts with his people here uh, sometimes catches us off guard. You know, so God comes and destroys Egypt. It is God's own hand that does this. And Mm -hmm. um, whether that's, you know, whether that's some kind of angelic being, whether that's somebody set aside in heaven for this purpose, whether it's God's own power, and this is how he describes it, God is going to judge Egypt by taking the firstborn from each household so he tells his people that before that happens he's going to spare them in what we now call the passover so the passover is kind of uh unique in the bible in that it is a one-time event that happens then it is a celebration of an event that happened that continues all the way to the time of jesus And then it is a renewed event that happens in Jesus' death and resurrection that we now celebrate in its fullness
1: uh, as Christians. So what happened in the original Passover? In the original Passover, God says in chapter 12, verse 12, that I will pass through Egypt. I'll execute judgment. I'm going to strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt dead. Moses goes back to the Israelites later in chapter 12, and he says, uh, if you will, take the lamb and slaughter the lamb and paint the doorpost with the blood of the lamb, literally. I mean, they. we hear that as Christians, forget that. They just know that it's going to be the blood of an animal that is going to replace the firstborn of their family. And so he says the destroyer will pass over you when God passes through Egypt. The Passover, we, again, think of it as an event, think of it as just an action, you know, as God passes through Egypt, he sees the blood of this animal and accepts that in lieu of the firstborn, and he passes over you. So the Passover is not so much a festival as it is a remembering an event, and that is the event. And sure enough, they do what God said. He passes through Egypt, firstborn, of every household dies except in the camp of the Israelites where the blood of the lamb is painted on the door. Now, the fact that we can't separate that blood of the lamb from the New Testament tells you the power of this story. Right. And and not just the story, this event. God intends to use this as a template for us to understand what Jesus is doing. I mean, what are some things you pull out of there and go, okay, there's this, there's this, there's this, you know, you got the uh, obviously, the guilt. You got the blood that takes away the guilt. You have yes. the lamb, who is the who is the weak creature that makes it possible. I don't know. What do you What do you think about that?
0: Well, I'll tell you something I learned in this uh, Morales book that I hadn't thought of before. Is you this is the foundation of the sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system is the foundation for or the preview of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. Mm. But what Morales does is he actually connects it one step backwards, that uh, this is not actually the first step in this process. The, the Passover, too, is based on a previous event. So he he talks about Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham's sacrifice, he's called to sacrifice Isaac, right. takes him up and he has, he has the blade in the air. God stops him and provides a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is honored instead of his son. So uh, Morales writes, uh, what is relevant for our purposes in the Exodus is that the entire cult of Israel, that is the temple system of priesthood and sacrifices, was built on an event narrated in Genesis 22, where Yahweh provided a substitute, an animal replacement for the seed of Abraham, whose utter consecration to himself he had commanded it. I thought that was really interesting because Mm -hmm. the continuity here is enormous from Abraham to Egypt and the Passover to the sacrificial system at Sinai, all the way through the temple, all the way through the sacrifices, all the way up to the time of Christ. And then God offers his own son on behalf of people and his blood turns God's wrath away as a new Passover. I mean, this is a huge theme in the Bible, and uh, it's easy to start with the sacrificial system, but the sacrificial system actually is based on this event, which is based on a previous event. This is the way God does things throughout all of Scripture. So I thought that was a really interesting point to bring out what's going on in this Passover Mm -hmm. event. It's not as arbitrary as it seems
1: at the time. You know, the idea of substitutionary atonement, a substitute is a concept that some people today don't like in 21st century America. But if you just look at what you just talked about, you've got a big hill to climb to take substitutionary atonement out of the Bible. Right. Yeah, it's the pattern that God uses to forgive his people
0: of their sins all the way through. Mm -hmm. And the thing, too, that you have to remember is, while it's because of the Passover, it's the Egyptians who, the firstborn among the Egyptians who are killed, for those Israelites who did not do this, they too, their firstborns would have been killed. Right. Um, And so because God tells them that he will pass over because of the blood of this lamb, the Israelites are able to leave Egypt. This is the plague that really uh, ends things. They are in a rush and this goes into how they celebrate the Passover later with the unleavened bread and cloaks tucked in and They're on the run. They escape Egypt. They get trapped by the Red Sea. All of a sudden, Moses goes out, parts the Red Sea, and Israel walks across on dry land. There's a pillar of fire that stands between them and the Egyptians, and then when the Egyptians cross over, the waters come back down and drown the Egyptian army, and Israel is safe on the other side. This is kind of the end of the first part of the Exodus, because after that, they go to Sinai. Although they have a couple of battles in here in between that you'll see in in the chapters Mm -hmm. leading up to 19. But uh, they leave, they cross. As we talked about, there's a couple of different theories about where they cross. Um, And then they arrive at the plain of Sinai, where we're going to pick up in part two. But before we end, I want to just talk about a couple of the takeaways the, the first one being, <clears throat> when you read this story, I think all of us have thought about the dynamic between God and Pharaoh before. And this is a really common question. Right. Uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. God hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. His heart is hardened in the passive voice without an agent sometimes. What do we make
1: of the heart hardening? That's a good point. As I was just reading this, I'm, by the way, Exodus is my reading plan right now. So I'm right around this area. I counted, this is not official, where God is the agent. God hardened Pharaoh's heart four times, chapter 7 through 12. Then I counted Pharaoh hardened his heart. He is the agent three times. And then five times it seemed impersonal. Uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You don't see an obvious agent. It's a declaration of an event in and of itself, and so, the, you know what strikes me the most. I, I don't go typically go down the line of. I realize this brings up the question of human will and God's sovereignty in a big sense, but the first observation I would make is that the Scripture in chapter seven through twelve goes back and forth between impersonal Pharaoh and God without any discomfort or embarrassment. Meaning you don't read this and it's like the scripture doesn't seem to have an issue with this. Right. Uh, that that and you and I look at it and we've got this kind of basically two value logic system. Well, it's got to be God or it's got to be uh, Pharaoh. Who's, who's actually doing the hardening here? And the scripture doesn't seem to be concerned with that question. And I simply want to point that out, that sometimes I think we are concerned with questions that the scripture is not concerned with. And that doesn't appear to be any source of distress in the, in the Bible. Right. I think that's something that
0: helps us to remember that our, our views on things like fairness and justice and um, what is loving and what is merciful— need to derive from scripture not from experience that we then put back on scripture the scripture gets to actually define what it, what it means for god to do something loving or something just and and what it means for him to have a unified character in doing those things you know we also have places in the bible uh where the, this passage is interpreted the most famous of which is in romans 9 and mm-hmm. i think this this Verse is sometimes used as a trump card without any explanation or context, which was maybe just as bad as not using it. But in Romans 9, Paul mentions this exact thing in, in verse 17. He says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And that first part is a quote from Exodus chapter nine in the dialogues with Pharaoh, that there's a specific purpose in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And it isn't just a destructive purpose here. See, this is where I think we need biblical categories. It's not just a destructive purpose. What Paul says here is the purpose of raising him up. And I take that to be part of the hardening, which we'll come back to in a second. Uh Uh-huh. The purpose of raising him up is that he might show his power so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God has plans for salvation beyond just the people of Israel. That's part of the sin of the people of Israel is they forgot that they were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be a blessing to all people so that people would come and serve God. They thought that basically they were saved so that God could love them. And uh, what Paul puts in perspective here is, no, God did this in Egypt so that all the nations of the earth would know that he is the Lord and that all nations would be drawn to him. And so going back to the point we mentioned earlier, one purpose, this is not all the purpose, but one purpose in what he's doing with Pharaoh is showing no one else is trustworthy. No one else is worth putting your confidence in for salvation besides God. And if that's Pharaoh, then then uh, you're mistaken, because God shows that he is not able to save. He's not trustworthy.
1: This is a really important point, that passage that you just quoted from Exodus 9. So let me set the stage. We're about to have the seventh plague. And God speaks and says, by now, I could have put out my hand, and I'm going to paraphrase, and killed you. Right. And killed all the Egyptians. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I raised you up. So what's he saying? And this really has interesting implications for your and my life. He's basically saying, we didn't have to go through these plagues. And by the way, I don't know how long this took. And there is a lot of suffering during these plagues, even some for the Israelites. And so you say to yourself, and I say this too, Cole, I'll bet you do too, is God, I'm going through some difficulties. I know you could put out your hand and snap your fingers, and this would be done. Just like he could have brought Israel out of Egypt on the very first day. Right. You know, very first plague just made it happen. But he didn't, and your point is well taken, because there was a greater purpose. Now, you and I might conjecture, and I certainly would, that if he'd brought Israel out on the first day, Israel would have quickly forgotten God's power. The rest of the world would never have heard of it. In other words, there's a purpose. I try to remember this passage and this incident in my life because I think, God, if you could, fix this right now? Why don't you fix this right now? And I trust there's a purpose here I don't see. And I think that's part of why this passage is here in Exodus 9, is God says there is a greater purpose here. I have plans for a lot of people, not just you, Pharaoh. Yeah, I think that's true.
0: The other thing here is in this verse that we've quoted now from Exodus 9 and the way that Paul uses it in Romans 9, for this purpose, I have raised you up. I, I think that's referring to him becoming Pharaoh. But like I mentioned a minute ago, I think this also has to do with the hardening. Part of the, part of the problem with God showing his power, which is what he's doing in this story, is that no one is an equal match for God's power. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that he hardens Pharaoh, Pharaoh is an opposing force in this story, but he's, he, he is so flimsy and he is so weak that God actually cannot do what he wants to do in this story unless Pharaoh becomes a more formidable adversary. So part of what you see in this story is Pharaoh is hardened to stand up to God when, as you just said, he could have just one plague, one and done, no plagues. I mean, at the end of the day, Moses could have just walked in and Pharaoh makes a calculated economic decision and decides, you know what, probably not worth it at this point. Let's just let them go. Instead, Pharaoh doesn't want to do that. God hardens his heart. God shows his power through
1: him and to the rest of the world that he really is God. Mm-hmm. You know, back on the uh, idea of, you know, we, we tend to want to take a one or the other approach. You either have human free will or you have God's directing things to his sovereignty. And we don't see both. And uh, this is not going to be satisfactory, but it, I, I want to quote the ancient Jewish rabbis in the Talmud. And here's how they came up with it. And it's a really good statement because it gets me out of this whole Western. It's got to be one or the other. They simply said this, all things are ordained and free will is given, period. They simply echo something they cannot explain in their mindset. Although the Hebrew mindset is comfortable, just as the Bible is, is that yes, God has ordained history whether through its foreknowledge, whether it's through his power, probably all of the above, and Pharaoh had the ability to decide. He hardened his own heart. I think both those are true at the same time. And our inability to see that, we don't really want to make the Bible, as you said earlier, conform to our Western ways of thinking. We want to conform our uh, paradigms to the way the Bible talks, get our categories to be biblical categories definitely so
0: as you said that's that's not always a satisfactory answer but i think it is a biblical answer and it's one that uh, is a tension that runs through the whole bible this god ordaining and human beings being responsible and exercising their will and passions and desires and sinful tendencies and faith and pleasing god all of this runs through scripture and uh, it's something that as we read the text we have to become informed through the bible's categories like you said do you have any final takeaways from the first half of the book of Exodus?
1: You know, i I think that we should read the first half of Exodus more than we do because let me just recap here quickly. You have Moses who feels insecure and not up to the task. Five times. He tells God, I'm not your guy for this. I mean, how many of us don't feel up for the task of the calling of Jesus Christ? We're afraid of the gods of our culture, and God completely humiliates the gods of the culture, and Moses is like, oh my goodness, you know, look what happened with me and this little staff, me, little insecure, insufficient Moses. God fights for them. You know when they're standing there at the Red Sea and they say, "Hey, everything went really well," but then Moses says, "Uh oh, what what do we do now?" Chapter fourteen, verse four is this. He says, uh, basically, God says this: You don't have to fight. I am going to show the Egyptians who I am. And so the Israelites are standing there like, we have no weapons. And and he says, you don't need any weapons. And how many times has that happened in our lives? It's like God's sending us out into this world. And it's like, hey, can I take a weapon? And he goes, you don't need a weapon. I'll be fighting this battle. Mm -hmm. And then they get into the desert and he gives them manna. He gives them water. He gives them everything they need. To me, this is just a parallel to the Christian life. And I am Moses in the sense of my, inability in a sense of how am I going to do this? And God says, I will be with you. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus' last words in Matthew to his disciples are the same as God's words to Moses and to Joshua and to so many other people. I will be with you. Right. Well, we're going to pick up
0: that theme in the second half of Exodus. We're going to see how God provides for his people Uh, through giving them the law, through setting up a community that is ready to receive His presence. And we'll hit that on part two of Exodus next time on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.